You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome back to Teller from Jerusalem. I'm your host, Hanoch Teller. So as promised in our last episode, let's take a look at those who voice opinions despite ignorance as if it were the fact. Our issue was that they were, at the time that the Balfour Declaration was gaining momentum, there were Jewish parliamentarians who maintained that Judaism is a religion without nationalistic aspirations. These gentlemen were bereft of Jewish knowledge and they made assumptions, even though they knew not what they were talking about. Ruf Cook was in Britain at the time, and he wished to set the record straight. He published a statement that was distributed throughout Jewish London, clarifying the central place that the land of Israel plays in Judaism, appealing as well to the conscience of the Gentiles to enable the Jews to return to their homeland from which they were banished. So, again, why, oh why, do people opine about what they do not understand? Rabbi Noah Weinberg, who passed away years ago in Jerusalem, he had an interesting yeshiva for beginners, and someone approached him and said, Rabbi, I'm in yeshiva in Israel now for two weeks, and I cannot find spirituality. I'm going to travel on to India to find spirituality. Rabbi Weinberg responded by saying, what is your opinion of the Bashemfkupis? He said, What? I said, What is your opinion of the Bashemfkupis? He said, I don't know. Rabbi Weinberg said, I'm not asking you to state knowledge. I'm asking your opinion of Bashemfkupis. He said, Rabbi, how in the world can I render opinion about what I don't even know? And then Rabbi Weinberg said, with a withering glance, and about spirituality, you do know? This reminds me of the story of my close friend, Rabbi David Orlovsky, who used to do outreach work in America. And one time, a high school kid told him, he just proclaimed, I'm an agnostic. So Rabbi Orlovsky said to him, tell me, surely you've read the works of Thomas Aquinas? No. Well, you must be familiar with the works of Maimonides. No. He said, well, of course, of course, you're familiar with Erasmus. No. And think about this. <laughs> I mean, you have this youngster, quite at sea in the English language, utterly confounded by the simplest declarative sentence, unread, unschooled, more superficial than a paper cut, who declares with psychotic passion that he's an agnostic. And he doesn't even know the difference between agnostic and an atheist, and here he is, I'm an agnostic. As my friend said, probably one day, riding home from school in the school bus, he looked out the window and said, hey, I'm an agnostic. He doesn't know anything, and yet he tells his expert opinion. Okay, so what in the world? Here's our final example. Our final example is of those who offer opinions of fact despite their ignorance. What in the world? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Would Elihu Yale have thought about the school named after him, let alone a college whose seal is composed of the Hebrew words that appear on the high priest's breastplate clearing? Urim Vitumim, Light and Truth, and we're talking about none other than the very famous, world-famous Yale University that altered its housing policy during the 1995-1996 academic year 
to require all unmarried freshmen and sophomores to live in co-ed dorms sans single-sex bathrooms. Yale's administration decided to alter tradition and pattern themselves after the college system of Oxford and Cambridge. This would entail the dormitories conforming to the university's educational mission, which touts residential life as an integral component of college education. Living on campus the college espoused meant living in the real world, with all of its complexities and challenges. It's not clear, or at least it's not clear to me, whose definition of real was being employed. But a simple deduction was that living in an all-male or all-female dormitory, which had worked hitchlessly since the introduction of co-ed colleges, was deemed unreal and thus verboten. There were five Jewish Orthodox students, which actually turned out to be four. There were five, but one of them civilly married before her religious marriage. So in the end, there were four, but they were always referred to as the Yale Five, who tried to appeal to administration to allow them to live off campus and not live in a co-ed dormitory. The negotiations failed, at which point these four students, but again known as the Yale Five, filed a suit in court saying that their constitutional rights had been violated. By doing this, the Yale Five had violated a sacred, unspoken rule of American Jewish life. From the time the Jews arrived in America's shores, they always tried to quietly conform. They adopted American-sounding names, as Jackie Mason humorously asserts. In the United States, nobody has a Jewish name. Americans want to make sure they don't sound too Jewish, so every Jewish kid now is Tiffany Schwartz. <laughs> Alison Ginsberg. Ashley Lipschitz. You get more reformed all the time. I know one kid is named Crucifix Pinkelstein. They did not wear a yarmulke in public. Even the small minority that elected to maintain a unique Jewish distinction did this by and large in low-profile, personal way, usually confined to a neighborhood where they were the majority. But because of this venerated policy of shunning publicity, it was considered scandalous when these four Orthodox students filed their lawsuit. By and large, the media failed to understand the objections of these religious students. The university was not forcing an illegal act. It was promoting a mainstay of college life, which is diversity. Jeremy Hirschman, one of the Yale Five, commented, I think diversity is a very important thing. I just don't think I should have to meet diverse women in my bathroom and in my bedroom. Another one of the Yale Five, Lisa Friedman, and most of the other Yale Five, the least likely of rebels, would have been inclined to pay for housing on campus as required and rent off campus. As a matter of fact, Jeremy Hirschman introduced himself on the first day of school to his roommate, who's assigned roommate, who came from an Asian background, and Jeremy introduced himself to Xu Wang and said to him, hello and goodbye, for he would not be living in the dormitory. At the end of the year, Zhu called him up and said, Jeremy, would you mind if I make you my roommate request for next year? Lisa Friedman had a similar experience. Lisa Friedman, also one of the Yale Five, on the first day of school, she met her roommate who had come from California, Lisa, comes from Long Island, New York. And her roommate said politely, which bed would you prefer? Lisa demurred and said, the choice is yours, because she would not be sleeping in her dormitory room. 
The roommate came from a totally different educational value system and could not fathom what in the world was making Lisa not live in the dormitory. But this roommate was elated by the fact she had all this extra space that was she was now afforded. So back to Lisa Friedman, and she said, uh, she would have been happy to avoid the media brouhaha and the ire of others. It would have been a costly and infuriating solution, but it would have resolved the problem, and as the dean said herself, we don't perform bed checks. Three-fourths of the Yale Five, as we already said, one of them had prematurely wed civilly to avoid the dorm restriction, were not looking for confrontation. They were certainly not looking for headlines. Paying for on- and off-campus housing would have been a much more preferred solution over going public. But it was the fourth student, who refused to capitulate to Yale's terms. There was just no way that his parents were going to pay $6,850 for housing that encouraged the lifestyle that, was, that he maintained and they maintained was forbidden and they believed to be unconstitutionally foisted upon freshmen and sophomores. Silently moving off campus to shelter one soul was abdicating responsibility. The responsibility of every decent person to protest how egregiously promiscuous campus life was. The impending lawsuit became a national news item, forcing naturally timid, news-averting Orthodox Jewish teenagers into the spotlight. General Jewish society read into the suit far more than just trying to spare four students from fulfilling a dormitory requirement at odds with the Jewish concept of modesty. They viewed it as an attempt to reverse the course of Jewish history in America, which had been consistently committed to assimilation Hence, the reaction to the lawsuit was total resentment. Resentment and insult. Independent of the affront regarding public protest, which the Jewish community always attempts to avert, the non-observant Jewish community was furious that Orthodox Jewish students were portraying to the media the way a Jew is supposed to behave as if someone had appointed them as Jewish spokesmen. Who were they? The Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations the unbridled chutzpah of these Orthodox students to broadcast specific guidelines and limitations upon a Jew's behavior, a corpus of tenets which no one had ever signed up for. Suddenly, the secularists were being viewed as fanatics regarding issues which they not only considered insignificant, but which they invariably disagreed. And judge it just in case I've lost you. This is the reason I'm bringing up this case. Just like the Jewish deans of Yale had no compunction stating that a co-ed dorm does not violate Judaism, so did the bandwagon of Jewish organizations and writers to the press. Just like the British parliamentarians who felt authorized to pronounce the strictures of rabbinic law and tradition of which they were totally and thoroughly ignorant. To the consternation of American Jewry, the kids in Yale had irresponsibly upset the apple cart transmogrifying it into rancid applesauce. The nation's tabloids and media outlets were reporting what the definition of being Jewish in America meant and what precisely Jew may or may not do based on and scripted from a self-appointed group of maniacal vigilantes. It was just absolutely outrageous that this handful of zealots were unable to adapt to worldly challenges still, and still expected to be educated in one of the nation's top universities, but only if it was done on their own terms, terms that sanctioned the technical aspects of modernity, 
but rejected its social norms. Accordingly, the Yale Five retreat like pariahs by the fellow Jewish students. The consensus was that if you elected to come to Yale, you must abide by the rules. And the fact of the matter is, Yale was very accommodating to religious students. They allowed them to have minyanim, to have religious quorums. They allowed them to have mechanical locks on their door, dormitory rooms instead of the electronic locks, which would be a violation of Sabbath observance. They allowed them, they honored their meal plan in the kosher dormitory, in the kosher cafeteria, they, or kosher meals at least. They were accommodating, but not on the fact of living off dorm in a co-ed, and they consider co-ed so critical to Yale education. And whatever happened to that democratic principle that everyone is entitled to their own opinion that they felt was inapplicable in this instance? Accordingly, there was not even the sympathy that is usually afforded to the underdog. The media, and I'm talking about Time Magazine, the New York Times, ABC News, the BBC, to name just a few, had a field day with the Yale Five. It was a powder keg with profound social and theological implications and a clear line demarcation between liberals and conservatives. For reporters, it was a newsworthy throwback to what currently seemed like outrageously outmoded earlier times. And the media could not get enough of it. I mean, after all, how often does a lawsuit involving two opposite worldviews, also entailing a battle of Jew versus Jew, as New York Times reporter Samuel Friedman would later entitle his book that features a chapter about the Yale Five, occur? Although the media was decidedly anti the Yale Five, unexpectedly, the college press in very small doses, began to express understanding. One writer pointed out, I'm quoting from Yale's daily newspaper, the Yale Daily Press, that Yale's position would appear absurd in any other context. What if, for example, Yale refused to serve vegetarian dishes but still required vegetarians to pay the $1,600 for a meal plan? What if Yale maintained all male dormitories after admitting women in 1969 and fined female students $7,000 for not living on campus? Had Yale displayed the same lack of accommodation to women and minorities a few decades earlier, they would not be part of the student body today. Moreover, Yale employed affirmative action, although this meant compromising its academic standards. Yet for these Orthodox Jewish students who believed that their religious convictions were being trampled, the school policy could not bend. One letter to the editor, Neil, pointed out a similar inconsistency. The writer wrote that the law protects an individual's health to the extent that a student who requests a non-smoking roommate cannot be matched with a smoker. Would there not be room to safeguard one's emotional health, she asked? Forcing someone to be in a situation where they felt like a sinner could never be deemed salubrious. What else was Yale Five member Jeremy Hirschman referring to when he said, quote, I feel like I'm transgressing when I'm in the dorms. The entire code of Jewish law makes it very clear a notion of modesty and privacy that is at odds with the conditions in Yale's dormitories. Now, not that anyone appreciates a lawsuit, still Yale's vitriol over this grievance was in a class of its own. Amidst a hail of censure and denunciation, the university filed for dismissal. And Yale was not the only passionate party in their objection. 
two Jewish groups, the Anti-Defamation League and the American Jewish Congress, filed amicus briefs against the Yale Five. The irony, as Mr. Nathan Lewin noted wryly, was that the establishment Jewish groups would have had no hesitation had it been any other minority group that had sought a concession from Yale. To me, this is reminiscent of the story that Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tursky used to tell that a Hasidic Jew boarded a bus in Pittsburgh and a Jewish passenger saw this man with the long coat and the side locks and the large hat and he said to him, aren't you ashamed of yourself dressing like this into this day and age? And the man said to him, pardon me, but I'm Amish. And the passenger felt terribly humiliated and he said, oh, I'm so, 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 I'm so sorry. I, I, I so much respect someone who can maintain their, their, their uh, traditions and I'm just flushed with embarrassment. Only afterwards, this Hasidic person said, aren't you ashamed of yourself? I'm actually a Hasidic Jew and look at your double standard and your hypocrisy. Gosh. So I've explained the groundswell of condemnation against the Yale Five without even detailing their supporters, and our time has lapsed. So please, tune in next week as we conclude our investigation as to why people speak when they know not what they speak about. Thank you, Maddie Drucker, for production assistance. Thank you, Alex Drucker, for being the super competent audio technician. And thank you, listeners. Please make others aware of this podcast. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com. 